Welcome to the number one show and the source of truth for all things medtech. Here, we reveal the secrets and stories behind the investments, science, and commercialization of the medtech industry. Every week, we'll take you on a wild ride with the biggest names in the game, from entrepreneurs and investors who are shaking up the market, to healthcare providers who are revolutionizing the way we think and practice medicine. So hold on tight and get ready for a journey like no other. This is the State of MedTech. Welcome back to the show, everybody. And this episode, uh, our guest is actually somebody I used to report to and used to work with, and that's Jeff Alvarez. Jeff is the Chief Strategy Officer for Moon Surgical, which is a surgical robotics company out of France. Uh, and Jeff is somebody who I have just uh, such a profound amount of respect for. Uh, personally, I think he's one of the greatest product minds and product leaders in our space. Um, just a little bit of background on him. Uh, he was actually employee number one at Oris Health, which is a uh, the surgical robotics company that Intuitive founder Fred Mall uh, founded and exited to J&J for, I forgot, four or five billion dollars. I, I keep forgetting the, the number. Um, but more importantly, when I was uh, working for Jeff, you know, I was the head of growth marketing at Petro Medical. That was actually the first uh, head of growth position ever in our industry, which was very interesting at the time because a lot of people didn't know what that was. Um, and under Jeff, I, I really learned how to apply design thinking to product development, uh, to run extremely tight, unbiased surveys to understand like what are the key features we have to implement into a product to drive adoption. And I think probably the biggest lesson I learned is the theory of constraints, which we'll get into in this episode. So in this episode, Jeff kind of walks through his philosophy on developing products, uh, the strategies behind it, and also his approach to design thinking. It's a great episode, and if you're not following him already, I highly recommend you follow him on LinkedIn. And before we get in, a couple of giveaways and sponsor shout outs. So first, if you're a company that uses Salesforce, let's face it, Salesforce, um, Nobody buys it and says, wow, it's exactly how we thought it was, right? Um, a lot of times the value of Salesforce CRM comes from the data being put in and your ability to extrapolate from that data insights as to what to do next. And well, sorry to say, that's not how Salesforce works. That's why I partnered with Clary. Clary is a revenue intelligence platform where they focus on helping companies develop and run revenue through revenue collaboration and governance. It's an investment I feel that uh, not only protects your initial investment to Salesforce, but really pulls the most out of it from automating uh, data entry from the reps, so the reps love uh, Clary, to every quarter, uh, the leads on the commercial side, both marketing and sales, are able to look at the data and through AI, predict revenue and understand how do you drive revenue? How do you increase and accelerate pipeline velocity? So to learn more about Clary, go to clary.com, C-L-A-R-I.com, or just check the show notes below. And then lastly, you know, if, if you're either in a startup, right, or even a larger company, you're launching a product, we all know how important it is to find early adopters. Early adopters for your product are the ones who accelerate mass market adoption. They give you the best insights for developing the product and more. The problem is, how do you find them? And, and how soon do you find them, right? That's where having data really helps. But unfortunately, most databases out there are really clunky, confusing, difficult to use. And, you know, of course, like with your Salesforce, your sales reps are going to be the best people to find those uh, early adopters. A lot of these databases are really complicated to use, not to mention they cost a lot of money. That's why I partnered with Alpha Sophia, uh, who helps med tech companies from startups all the way to large enterprise companies discover early adopters using their database. I've used their database and I love how easy it is to use. I'm able to look up surgeon procedure volume, prescribing behaviors. They've even integrated uh, the social media profiles for physicians. So when you look up a physician, you can see if they have a Twitter profile, an Instagram profile, or a LinkedIn profile, which in my opinion helps amplify and drive product awareness because if you find that early adopter with a good social media presence, that helps scale that product awareness. So to learn more about Alpha Sophia and more importantly, get three free reports from them, go to alphasophia.com forward slash 
Omar. That's A-L-P-H-A-S-O-P-H-I-A.com forward slash Omar and get your reports today. Now, let's get to our episode with Jeff Alvarez, Chief Strategy Officer over at Moon Surgical. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. And uh, this is going to be our first episode, uh, you know, kind of focus more on product and product development. And, you know, who better than to have uh, than my good friend, former boss, lifetime, lifelong friend, uh, Jeffrey Alvarez, who's the uh, Chief Strategy Officer over at Moon Surgical. Jeff, thanks for joining us, man. How are you doing? Good, Omar. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So, Jeff, for those of you, for those who don't know you, um, can you maybe give a little bit uh, of an intro? And um, I'm going to just pepper pepper onto that to start from now because you're you've always been extremely humble and down to earth. But you know, Jeff was employee, not just not employee one. I call him employee zero at Aurus. Um, where you know he was hand, sort of hand selected by Fred Mall, and I think originally you were put on, um, I think you were put on like some of the papers originally because Fred was just like, we'll just put Jeff's name on it. I think was that is that is that a true story? Uh, yeah, certain things like the domain uh, of Oris Robotics was registered to my my name for a long, long time. Uh, I think even after J and J bought it, um, uh, you know, just random things like that uh, were still connected to me and. Um, but yes, it was it was fantastic. Uh, it was the the first employee uh, day one was April fifteenth, twenty eleven. Um, it was an office at Moffett Field, um, it, it, which is an old naval base in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and you know, uh, Fred and I uh, walked into the room, and it was a conference room. There weren't any chairs, and we we talked, and he gave me the rundown of uh, what we wanted to build, and then. Um, we we started going and we were at Moffett uh, Field for maybe about six to six to nine months uh, before we moved up to Redwood Shores where where Forest is headquartered. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a great it's a great HQ. So and, you know, for you, you're you're one of the people who uh, I really look to in terms of, you know, how do you develop like a good medical device, especially like a surgical robot. But before we kind of dive into some of those details, like now that I kind of like laid the laid, laid the groundwork, you know, give us a little bit more background on who you are, like where did you grow up, what you study in school and how, how do you get into the industry? I don't know about you, but most people don't go to college saying, I'm going to go into medical devices. Like some people, Henry Peck, I think Henry Peck was maybe the only person, yeah. you know, who's like born to go into med tech because his dad is in it. But yeah. Um, yeah. What's it, like, what's your story? Yeah. So I, I grew up in California, born and raised in the Central Valley, actually a town called uh, Tracy. And um, I, uh, you know, just spent a lot of time outside building things. Um, uh, we had a lot of uh, trees in our yard. And so there was always like scrap pieces of wood. Uh, and I would just assemble, you know, um, lots of different um, uh, uh, toys, right? And, and and things to do with with all the scraps around or, or friends and I would spend time, um, you know, uh, running around orchards, uh, playing capture the flags. So it, was, it was a fabulous way to grow up. Um, I got obsessed with airplanes. I still am today uh, and wanted to be an aeronautical engineer. Um, and so I went to uh, school at a, a great institution called Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. It's up in Troy, New York. Um, it's the oldest technical institute in, uh, or technical college in the United States uh, and studied mechanical engineering. Uh, and really just kind of fell in love with it because it, it, it brought out my creative side, my analytical side, and allowed me to bring those two things together. While I was there, uh, I, I uh, did an interview with a company that was recruiting um, co-ops, which were like uh, you know six-month internships uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and this was a um, a, a thoracic surgery company, cardiac surgery company, that uh, was uh, doing anastomotic devices for bypass surgery, and so that in, in bypass surgery you have to connect a graft from the aorta to a coronary artery. Uh, and it takes a lot of delicate suturing. Um, and, you know, this company had the idea of let's let's um, create these little nitinol frames that will hold on to the graph and allow you to very quickly connect the bypass graph to, to the coronary artery in, in seconds. Uh, you know, it was a small startup, about 25 people. Uh, I got the job. I spent six months there. While I was there, I got to to rework an instrument, take it through like verification, validation, and then actually see it used in, in um, cardiac surgery. So I, I was, 
you know, completely blown away as a uh, young engineer that this industry existed and I could have this kind of impact. And so ever, ever since then, I was hooked. Uh, I've been in medical devices uh, since a time in 2004 with a, a lot of different startups. Um, I did uh, two and a half years at a great firm called Pro uh, Heemster Product Development that specializes in handheld medical instruments uh, and industrial design. And it was um, a fantastic place to start a career because, you know, you get to see uh, dozens of different uh, clinical problems, ways of solving those problems, and uh, lots of different design experience when it comes to, you know, injection molded components, nitinol design, catheter design, um, ergonomics around handheld instruments. So it was an incredible exposure uh, to, to the industry. Um, and then shortly after that, I got hooked up with uh, Fred Vole at um, uh, Hanson Medical, which was a, uh, a, a company uh, an old school yeah, name. that was, um, it, you know, it had designed a robotic device, uh, these robotic catheters that would go up into the heart for atrial fibrillation for, for electrophysiology management. And, you know, the, uh, I spent like four and a half years there and got to see a lot of different ways of bringing innovative technology to create, uh, uh, great um, uh, um, new devices with incredible capability and just, you know, wasn't thought of before and uh, had the opportunity to, to lead some of the early development of their Magellan system, which was their vascular uh, system. And we built these incredibly um, slender uh, and long catheters that can navigate the vasculature of the, human body and reach these locations that were just incredibly far away for, uh, from a, that you couldn't reach with traditional uh, catheters. And so it was a great experience, again, getting exposed to, to fantastic technology. Um, and then I got, after that, I got hooked up with, with uh, Boris at, uh, um, with, with Fred and as, again, employee one and, and got to start to build that out. It's sort of an interesting, um like factoid about Oris, but uh, can, you, can you share the, um, uh, which company did you borrow some robots from to, to put together like the first prototype that, that I always, it's one of my favorite stories. And I think there's like a lot of like really interesting stories like that people don't know about. This is kind of why I have the show. Yeah. You know, uh, the, um, the, the beginning of Oris, we had, we had about $500,000 uh, of investment and, and the goal was, Hey, you know, assemble a small team and build a, a demonstrable system for cataract surgery. Uh, and that's, that's what we got started on. And, you know, there's no way that you can build a robot with $500,000. Um, and so we had to get really clever. Uh, and what we did is we bought these two old, um, restoration robot systems, these, these, you know, systems that I think they had used for verification validation and we're just going to dismantle. Uh, and then, um, my colleague and I, I was working with Jin Zhang, who, who now is the CEO of NOAA Medical. Uh, uh, we um, sat there and figured out how to re-engineer this thing to do cataract surgery. So we, we disassembled this, this restoration robot system uh, and were able to use all, a lot of its existing hardware, a lot of its existing controls and software, and then reconfigure it so that it could actually track the eye during surgery and then can manipulate these little instruments to do, do cataract surgery. We, uh, I was going to say for those who are, who are, who are not familiar, so restoration robotics uh, has the artist system and that's a, that's an aesthetic robot used for hair restoration. It's got a really impressive computer vision system, but yes, essentially you, you guys took two hair restoration or hair transplant robots and put them together to do cataract surgery. Yeah, yeah, it, exactly. It was, uh, a, a fantastic adventure because you had to, you had to really understand what the goal was and the goal was to get all that done before you ran out of that five hundred thousand dollars and uh you know you had to you know be quite effective at at figuring out where you were going to spend your time to get get to the goal uh in time and we we did it you know we were able to build a robot and we were able to show a demo where like could go in and take out these cataracts in models uh in pig eyes and even cadaver eyes and um uh, you know, and then from then we got our seed investment and it just really took off. That's amazing. And it's, it's such an interesting story. And I think like one of the reasons why I moved to the, to Silicon Valley, uh, earlier in my career was just to like hear stories like that. Um, 
And uh, no, that's really amazing. Kind of shows that like sometimes um, you don't have to like build from from the ground up. Sometimes you have to just look and get inspiration from different places and put bring things together. That's one thing I've noticed about you as a product leader is that you're really good at looking at other industries, other places, and getting really good ideas and then bringing them in. At least you know when you when I reported to you at Petrero, we did a lot of that. Um, and maybe that's a good place to start. Um, you know. Uh, I don't know about you, Jeff, but I feel like there's a lot of, well, for every one great medical device, see, I see a lot of like knockoffs and things that I don't really see how they're going to provide any value to the patient, let alone like, you know, they just end up, you know, increasing the cost of healthcare. When you think about starting a medical device company, um, like w there's so many places to go. W where do you start? You know, where, where, where does the whole journey begin? Yeah, it, uh, it's an excellent question. So, um, you know, the philosophy that that um, I have learned over time, and, and I worked in steel, and the teams I work with is is uh, a lot of it is about um, listening to the customer, um, understanding their needs. Uh, you know, what is it that they're um, uh, trying to do, um, and then why they're trying to do it like what is what is their goal um because they might be doing something that is completely ridiculous and if you figure out what their goal is what they're trying to achieve you might find a better way to get there um and then to um build something that kind of meets that goal uh, and then test it right challenge the assumptions challenge your understanding don't assume that you solved it get out there and uh, test it with Lots of different doctors to see, you know, what you got right and what you got wrong, and then start that process over again. But you can't just go out there and have the discussion with with a surgeon, right? You need to you need to listen to them, you need to observe them, you need to uh, understand, uh, build, uh, test, and then iterate. Um, and when you go through that process, uh, it'll help you really um, arrive at, at uh, a much better solution. Now, the other key thing. Um, is is what I like to uh, do is the what's called the current reality tree. So it's, it's mapping out what the existing situation is, usually by you know asking why a few times, and uh, you start to build this kind of reverse tree where it's like these roots, and then you end up with with the the tree trunk, and you'll find uh, key problems that are causing lots of other problems, and then you know you can then start to think about, hey, if I solve these three things here, it completely changes the game, um, you know, for for this surgeon or whoever the customer is. Um, and that's a, a, a fantastic exercise that can really help you um, develop fantastic products. Yeah, I, I want to dig into that a little bit more. You know, one, you, you've mentioned the goal uh, multiple times. And one of the things that actually, I still have it, you, you gave me a, a book that I never heard about called The Goal. Uh, by a guy named Goldrot. And um, the whole purpose of the goal was uh, essentially this, this I think, like a uh, five-step process, which was like, you know, you, you identify a constraint and it, constraints are like a really big thing with you. You know, you taught me the sort of the value of it. And then deciding how to like exploit those uh, constraints, then put everything to, you know, all your resources around that and then elevate that constraint. And then finally, like just you know, repeat that whole process. Can you, can you talk about the importance? Like why, what's, what's the importance of understanding constraints? Yeah. Um, yeah. I love that uh, book. It, it's one of the few business books I think I've read multiple times because I feel like I always learn something new every time, but um, you know, it, it brings up what, what they, they coin as the theory of constraints and it, uh, what it identifies is the importance in any process, whether it's a product development process or a manufacturing process, or even like a, a sales process, it's identifying, uh, the bottlenecks in that process because everything you do is governed then by that bottleneck. Um, and then, you know, managing that bottleneck to increase, um, you know, throughput, uh, uh, in that bottleneck. Now you can continue to increase it. And at some point that bottleneck will switch to something else. Um, and so that's what you, you focus on managing. So that's, that's one key area, um, uh, in the book. The other is, is, uh, uh, the theory of constraints, which is really a stack up of activities. So when you have a number of different activities that, you know, there's a lot of different dependencies, you need to 
um, understand the the critical chain through that stack up, which is, you know, people call it the long pole in the tent or um, the critical path. Um, that usually will govern your product development schedule, uh, and that's your your bottleneck. That's that's what you need to to focus on. Now, what's different between the critical chat, uh, critical path, and the critical chain is the critical chain uh, employs a resource allocation to it, so that you ensure that uh, your resources are deployed appropriately and focused on moving those things forward in a in a prompt timeframe. Um, really love the book, and and you know, in in it's a it's theories that I actually put into practice in nearly. Um, all aspects of my life when I think about it. Oh, so, really? Like even personal life? Yeah, I mean, it's because it, everything you do has like a stack of, of activities. And so one thing I, I like in it too is thinking about, hey, if I have to go catch an airplane, uh, you know, at JFK uh, at, at 10 a.m. tomorrow, uh, when do I need to pack? When do I need to sleep? Where where am I getting toothpaste if I'm out? Um, what time do I need to leave my house? And so all these things kind of stack up because they're all connected to each other. and you know, you can you can figure out how you get to the airport on time while still accomplishing all that stuff. Like, hey, the toothpaste, I might get it in Paris after I land, right? I, I could there's things I can take out of that um that chain of activities uh and push it to other places that shorten the the critical path and allow me to still reach the goal without compromising what needs to be achieved. Yeah, I'm happy you mentioned that because like one of the things that um one of the bigger things, I mean, I learned a lot from you during our time. One of the things that I remember was, um, and this is, you know, again, like I was a young guy that was like, you know, sort of like, you know, I went, I was in Silicon Valley already for like a year or two, but like, I think Petro was like the first time where I was at something like, like when I joined, we were, how many people we were like 15 or 20 people. It was, it was a small company. We we're all, we we're all in one room yep. working. And um, yep. there's a moment where I was like, Oh, like that's, that's how you become like Jeff Alvarez or you, you kind of like really become, you know, you, you like, cause I used to think I was like, what does it take to get like a board member or somebody like a Fred Mall, like to say, Hey, we, like, I want you to be like employee one here. Right. And one of those things that stood out to me was, um, you organized the whole team around objective key results. And we had like, uh, uh, tape on the boards to figure out like how, like wh what everything was doing, and I kind of realized like one of the one of the skill sets that you need as an entrepreneur is to bring a lot of order when there's chaos and a lot of moving pieces and everything. Can you like talk a little bit about that and and how it relates to that? Because I think that part of it, identifying those constraints is that you have to figure out like what are all the pieces, uh, you know, and wh where are they all going, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I often talk about startups as it's a, a conflict of prioritization. Uh, and that is the biggest thing that you're always trying to juggle is figuring out what do I need to prioritize over the others? Um, and because there's always, you know, work to be done, too much work to be done without enough resources, without enough time, without enough money. Uh, and uh, what we did at, at Petrero is we we built out these Kanban boards that uh, forced us to think about, hey, what are the top three priorities that I should only focus on today? That um, uh, you know, if if I achieve any of those, if I complete any of those, it's it's a it's a win for the day. Um, and then not touching anything else that's in in that work stream. And what that does is it it forces focus, it forces conversations about, hey, um, Omar, this is my priority for the day, but I can't get it done because you know you have this other ticket that's in your queue and it's not in your priorities yet. So how do we how do we reconcile that? Um, and those are fantastic conversations to have because it it shortens the the path of communication, especially around blockages or the uh, that are are slowing down the flow of work. Um, uh, you know when other other uh, situations that you know they might rely on email right which is a a queue of communication that uh, isn't always looked at uh, 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 throughout the day so it can really delay things when when you aren't having those types of forced conversations about prioritization yeah and I think <clears throat> you know the, the, what's what's really valuable here and if, if funny enough um, it's you know I, I talk to other entrepreneurs, especially if they're a small business owner, because like if you if you leave corporate America, um, 
and you start a company, but you're venture backed, like you, you still kind of experience this. What's interesting for me is that, you know, I run my own business. I'm not venture backed, but then after like a month or so, like a lot of these things that I used to do in these startups, I started doing here. Cause I'm like, Oh, there's actually a really good reason why we should do this. <laughs> you know, like including now, um, I actually, there's, um, for anybody who's an entrepreneur or a business owner, there's a thing called commit action. It's a like, psychological productivity coach coaching company and every week i meet with this person and they hold me accountable and i talk about like the three things i'm focused on doing getting done this week and like and then we 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 really scrutinize things like well how does this the one thing relate to this bigger goal and everything and you have to you have to right. make decisions i think like i think like seeing that process of patron and how you you manage it was kind of kind of it kind of relates to what um uh, elon musk says which is like you will get paid in proportion to the complexity of the problem that you're solving. And I think when it comes to running a company and when you're trying to find product market fit and solve for all these things, if you have all these smart people in a room, I think people often uh, are misguided and think like, oh, people will just figure out what to do. But you actually have to set up really robust systems and processes and 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 like like OKRs even like that's not something that you figure out how to do within a month or two. Like it, it takes constant reiteration, you know? Yeah. How do you know when the system yeah. is good? It's never, it's, it's, uh, it's never perfect. Uh, and that's one of the things to keep in mind. It should always be evolving and it should always be adapting to the needs of the organization and the people in that organization. So, you know, one um, process that we might develop that let's say at like a company like Petrero, might not apply uh, to to a company like Moon, where I'm at today. Uh, and what you learn is the, the tools and techniques and then figuring out how to tweak them and adapt them to the needs of that organization. Um, and, you know, when it when it comes to um, problems uh, that you're solving, uh, it, it's the same type of thing. You have to focus on certain problems and not try to solve all the problems at once, right? Take, take like 90% of the problems that you think are out there for, for um, something you're trying to deliver and put that on the shelf and say, hey, these are the three things that we need to get a, a solution for or a signal on, uh, you know, uh, on are we solving it in the right way? Because if you try to do everything, you're going to slow the answers to those first three key questions down. Uh, and uh, what you end up with is, hey, um, you know, six months later when something you could have gotten an answer let's say in in two weeks uh if you try to solve everything and maybe six months later then you come back and, and test it and you identify oh these first top three problems we we got that wrong you could have had that you know a long time before before that so it's it's essential that you focus on a few key problems and work those um to get direction before you you move on to kind of the next set of problems interesting you know um, on that same same note, I think the other thing that um, I feel like things that seem simple are actually not easy to do. And one of those things is is uh, getting uh, customer feedback and insights. And I think that that's a process that a lot of times that people bias it without even knowing. I remember yeah. when we worked together and getting like like feedback from nurses, like there's a very specific process. How do you think about, you know, soliciting like customer feedback, observing, you know, so that way you can get to sort of the root of the problem. And you even mentioned this, you know, in the past where, um, you know, when you decide to develop a new medical device, like a lot of times you just go and observe surgeries and, you know, and then ask very specific questions. How do you think about that process? Yeah. Um, it goes back to that list of things, right. To, to listen, observe, um, understand test and iterate and and so that's the the process of follow is is you know start by having conversations and identifying a, a potential area um get in and um watch surgeries um watch workflow watch how people interact watch where there's friction in a process watch where there's struggle um uh, and in some ways audit what you've heard from the surgeon um and or or, or healthcare practitioner um and then 
kind of once you you've done that observation, take the time to understand what you saw, right? Do something like that current reality tree where you're building up different levels and, and understanding, okay, all these kind of different things we we observed, um, here's kind of the root causes of it. And here's where we should tackle uh, uh, or develop a solution to, to really kind of change the game. And then you build something that, that delivers that and, and test it. Um, uh, and I, you know, I think that's a, such a key point um, is that the, you really got to roll up your sleeves and step into the customer's shoes to understand what it is they're trying to do, uh, how the workflow um, uh, around a device might be um, convoluted or, or confusing or cause friction and, and where improvements can be made that ultimately delivers a better experience. You know, one of my, my fondest memories of our time at Petrero was uh, when we, we had to develop a new fully catheter kit, right? And and we went into the back lab and I said, okay, Omar, we're going to, uh, I'm sure you remember this, we're going to we're gonna um, uh, act as the nurses and we're going to insert a Foley in this this anatomical model. And um, you're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, that's that, that's what we're going to do. And we're, while we're doing it, we're just going to see what is all in the kit. What are all the different components? Where is it confusing? Where is there friction? And we're going to work on improving it. And, uh, you know, it was fantastic because we got so many insights from that hands-on experience, um, you know, uh, inserting fully catheters into, a, into an anatomical model, right? Yeah, it, it was, you know, I love that process because... <clears throat> I had no offense to anybody who's working on that, on that kit, but you know, a Foley catheter is like pretty simple. I mean, it's not like a robot. And so just this very simple thing, I remember uh, becoming a lot more empathetic toward the end user where I'm like, man, like this is one of many things they have to do. And like, we're putting this on an anatomical model. The, the model's not moving around. Right. Yeah. You know? And so it, it, it was really interesting to understand that. And, and again, like, um, you know, what, what I really enjoy is that a lot of these things, if you pay close attention to you can translate it to a lot of things in your own life or your own business. Like for, for me, even, um, you know, I have, you know, my very first product was this, uh, medical sales course, you know, and so I developed and launched it. And then, um, you know, I had to solicit a lot of feedback, but also go through it myself a few months later. I'm like, Oh, you know what? Like that, this is actually kind of unnecessary. This is a little bit too much. This is too, too little. Um, and I think like, I think, I don't know, I'm wondering your, your thoughts, uh, cause you've been, you've been doing this for a long time in terms of what is it, what does it take to be a great product? Maker? There's a lot of young product managers and stuff. They want to get to that role of like being a VP, had a product. What, what, what does that look like? You know, if you can describe that person and, and the things that they're good at and what they do. Yeah. I, you know, communication is essential. Um, there's, there's this idea first, um, about, uh, when you're talking to your team, um, there's uh, clarity over comfort. Uh, and so that's the idea that you need to be able to have, uh, you know, direct conversations about uh, things that are getting developed uh, or uh, a potential solution that might not be going in the right direction. There needs to be the ability to have um, candid conversations about that, even though they might be uncomfortable because it provides clarity on what the true value is to the customer, right? What the true goal is. Um, and it's it's tough because you not only need uh, a product manager that you can do that, you need that mindset in the overall organization. Um, and uh, so I think that's that's one thing. This The second key thing is really that ability to go in and, and work the problem. Um, uh, you know, through those steps of, of listen, observe, uh, understand, um, it, you know, if you can't get in and do those types of observations and figure out where those root causes are, uh, you'll, you'll have too many problems to solve. Um, uh, and then I think the third is, is actually probably one of the hardest things to do. Uh, it's, it's the ability to say no, um, because there's always lots of things that can be done. There's lots of cool ideas out there. There's lots of you know things that would create marginal value to the customer, but you you know they might compromise the timeline. They might draw more resources. They might increase complexity. Um, and you got to be able to say no. That's that's not again not one of those key problems that you're trying to solve. Um, you know, in your in your in your past, um, I mean, base whatever you're comfortable with, but. 
What's an example of a situation you're in where you had to say no, like a, a tough situation, you know? I mean, we, I, I think it's at Moon Surgical, it's one of our um, most powerful tools that we wield. Uh, and that's because, you know, our entire premise is to build a simple, easy to use surgical robot that creates incredible value in laparoscopy. And in order for you to keep it simple and easy to use, there's there's a lot of times that you have to say, no, this isn't this isn't good enough, uh, or this isn't in the right direction, or this increases learning curve, or this increases complexity. Um, and uh, what's great is our our company truly understands what the goal is of the organization and our and our system, which is to deliver that simple, easy to use experience. And so we know and understand. Uh, that is uh, is the goal that we're working towards, uh, and so we've we've built the environment where saying no is is perfectly okay. Tell us, yeah, tell us a little bit more about Moon, and I'm wondering, like, um, what made you go there? Because, like, I'm I'm just gonna say, I like as much as I love robots, um, I feel like there's a lot of robotic companies that are just for the sake of having a robotic company. And it's like, we'll, we'll make our own like knockoff of XYZ robot. Usually it's like the Da Vinci robot. And we're going to just like, you know, we're going to focus on like the crumbs of like this approach or that approach. Um, I think like if I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll hit really hard in one area. Um, look, robotic spine companies, you know, like I worked at Mazor. Um, so the, the two big ones are like Mazor and Globus, but there's like, I don't know, nine or 10 of them. And they all do the same thing to some certain extent, and they make some like small incremental improvement on one part of the procedure. And so I, I, when I think of robotics, I, I, I really believe in something that's like extremely transformative, that's going to bring a radical change and not just like the incremental thing. What made you go to Moon? Because again, you've been in multiple robotic companies, so you probably have that same filter I have. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a question that I get uh, a lot. And, you know, there are a lot of soft tissue robots out there under development. And, um, uh, you know, because of it, there's there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of uh, ideas in development, there's a lot of different capabilities, but nothing that I ever really intrigued me that I saw as the solution uh, to, again, some of those biggest problems. Um, and so thinking through that process and identifying what those biggest problems were, you know, uh, the the telerobotic systems today, or 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 the the uh, soft tissue systems today, are um, uh, larger systems that perform laparoscopy in in a, a very small portion of it. Right, that's the total robotic uh, assisted surgery uh, versus overall laparoscopy is only about six percent. And so there's ninety four percent of the laparoscopy market has not been uh, has not adopted robotics. Uh, and so the question is why. Uh, and that's where you, you start to boil it down. And, and the reasons are, well, um, robotics today are expensive. Um, you know, they can cost, uh, you know, about $2 million to get uh, the capital equipment. Uh, ongoing costs are massive. Uh, you got to build all uh, a whole in a new instrument kit. You got to train all your staff. You've got service contracts. You've got depreciation that's hitting your, your um, balance sheet. And uh, it's, it's it's not easy, right? It's costly, especially in today's environments where a lot of hospitals are in the red. Uh, you know, the second thing is uh, complexity. Uh, they they take a lot of training. The learning curve on uh, Da Vinci types of procedures can exceed uh, uh, sixty to eighty cases, uh, and and they take dedicated staff uh, as well to support them and set them up. Um, and so, you know, you can't deliver technology that is increasing complexity for for surgeons and staff today, um, we need we need things that simplify their lives. Um, the 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 other area is about real estate, um, and and this is uh, uh, something that I don't think is easily uh, understood. But you know, out there in hospitals today, um, real estate is precious. They'll have uh, you know ten to twenty operating rooms that would be doing laparoscopy, uh, and they're fairly small. Uh, they're they're not something you can put large systems like Da Vinci in. Um, the rooms that they have these Da Vinci systems are quite large, right? And those are their dedicated robot rooms. 
And so it also portrays just how much laparoscopy is being performed out there um, in these other operating rooms. And so you need you need a solution that is uh, uh, designed to be cost effective. Um, you need a solution that is simple and easy to use, and you need a solution that uh, is small and can fit into the places where procedures are being performed. You don't solve those things. You don't you don't deliver something that can truly transform laparoscopy. Um, so that was our um, uh, you know, uh, modus operandi at, at, at Moon is, is these three things are things that we have to solve. And I'm really appreciative of the team. We've got extremely talented individuals on it. Uh, Dave Noonan is our CTO. He's uh, absolutely brilliant. He's a wonderful human being uh, as well, which is even more fantastic. And, you know, we have been able to solve these things in a way that really, um, gets hospital uh, surgeons uh, and administrators excited uh, about the, the the maestro system. Well, you know, uh, like every, and, and thanks for sharing that. So like, like every company, I mean, they're, they're investors and the idea is um, you'll create like in so much value that either through an acquisition or IPO or, or whatever it might be that they'll be able to get a return. Where do you see Moon having the biggest impact and like financially as an investment? Is it going after a certain type of market? Is it, you know, a type of facility? What is What does that path, commercialization path look like? A lot of surgical volume. Hospitals are pushing a lot of surgical volume to outpatient centers. Uh, and these are um, because they're much more cost efficient. They have uh, much less overhead, you know, operating room uh, in an inpatient setting costs about $40, $40 a minute to operate an outpatient setting, and it's about $20 a minute. So it's it's significantly less, and the direct labor is, is significantly less. So it's um, uh, to solve their their issues, uh, their operating income issues, they're they're pushing this surgical volume to these outpatient centers because uh, they can get you know five to six procedures done a day um, at a, in a much more efficient, lower cost setting. And ultimately, that's more operating income. That's that's more revenue for them. Uh, and um, you know what we focused on is how to make sure that um, you know the Maestro system works for these these customers and these environments. Um, and so we went through a, a fairly extensive process, of, uh, value assessment process, where we said, hey, our surgeon is definitely a customer. Our patient is definitely a customer. Um, the hospital administrator is a customer and the operating room staff is a customer. So how do we ensure that we're maximizing and creating value for each of these individuals in the configuration of our offering? Um, and in doing that, we figured out how to, to bring Maestro, uh, uh, you know, develop Maestro into a capability that the hospital administrators are very excited about, um, the nursing staff is very excited about, and the surgeons are very excited about. Um, and in, in these environments, in these outpatient centers, you know, this is really where I think it will thrive. That's, yeah, and I think it's I think it's interesting and timely just because, you know, there is this big shift in medicine, I think, post-COVID in terms of doing things not only that are more cost-efficient, but more importantly, uh, easier on the patient, you know. Like, you know, even me, um, you know, I live outside of San Diego and the idea of like going as much as I love like scripts and stuff, if I had to go and get an operation, like the idea of going to one of these massive gargantuan hospitals, just, just even parking there, it just like, like I, I it makes my skin crawl, you know? Yeah, definitely. I, that's one of the appealing things for, for patients is you know they can they can park it's a small parking lot 15 minutes later they're uh in in pre-op and um they can go home the same day with a lot of these procedures so it's much more pleasant much more reliable experience than you know something like the big big hospital where you know much more challenging uh to get it done and you know surgeons like it too it's easy for them to get in and do these procedures right it's the on-time start uh or uh on-time start times for procedures is much more reliable in the outpatient setting than, than the inpatient setting. Well, I want to be mindful of time. I know that uh, you have a hard stop, and so that means we're going to definitely have you back. But this last uh, segment, I want to do some sort of like fun rapid-fire questions. Is that cool? okay, okay with you? 
I haven't had a, I haven't had uh, a guest yeah, say, sure, no, yeah. it's not okay with me. Eventually somebody's going to say that. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So you can take as long as you want on these questions. So first question to you is, uh, I mean, we're out of the pandemic, so it doesn't apply as much, but you know, during the pandemic, I think like one of the things that like kept America going was like Amazon prime. You know, there, there was something about like, I have a theory, Jeff, that, um, post pandemic, because people got so used to ordering stuff on Amazon Prime, that was like the only thing that made you feel good is like you saw boxes. I think it's continuing, so consumer spend has gone up. But what's what's a what's a cool gadget or something fun that you've purchased from Amazon Prime recently that you're like, oh, this is awesome? Uh, yeah, I mean that's a good question. Cool gadget that I purchased from Amazon Prime. Cool gadget, so, you know, maybe something that's just really unique and helpful. I'll buy you, I'll buy you some time while you're thinking. So I'll, I'll, sh I'll share one. So it's on my desk. Actually, you'll love this. So for me, I'm, I'm always trying to optimize my environment as much as possible, uh, for, yeah. you know, productivity for myself and everything. I'm, I'm really big into health. So there's this uh, company called air things, air things. Okay. It's this disc. Okay. And, uh, just operates on a battery connects to my iPhone and essentially, it monitors uh, the air around me, but more specifically, the carbon dioxide level. Oh, wow. And so, like, right now, it's yellow, right? And so, like, your productivity, your ability to think goes down a lot when you're in a room that's not full of oxygen. And so, when this goes to yellow, right, it immediately indicates to me, I'm like, you know, I should open a window. I should leave the office for a little bit. And so like my ability to actually think and get stuff done has gone through the roof just because, because in the past, you know, I'd get in my room, in my office, I close the door, I wouldn't open the window because I wanted to be quiet. And then I, I didn't realize how stuffy it would get in there. Yeah. And so like towards the afternoon, I'm like, man, I'm really feeling like I'm slogging. I thought I was just tired, but no, it was carbon, carbon dioxide yeah. levels. So, so that's my thing. I bought you okay, enough time. Yeah, you got to yeah, come no, up with something. One. So, you know, uh, <laughs> I started reading this book recently called Glucose Revolution, and it, it's been fascinating because oh. uh, it, it talks about uh, uh, a lot of things in, in the food that we eat today, uh, you know, how it impacts our glucose levels, which ultimately impact, you know, our energy uh, regulation. Um, and what, you know, one of the interesting facts that I had no idea about is uh, it's it, it's not just about the food that you eat, but the order that you eat it, right? And um and and so huh. you're supposed to eat high fiber uh, uh, content first, and then you know uh, protein, uh, and then carbohydrates, and then sweets. And when you do that, uh, yeah, glucose spikes are uh, about the third of what they would be if you kind of ate it all. So like if you had a hamburger, right? Dissect the hamburger and you eat the eat the lettuce and pickles and tomatoes and stuff first, and then you eat the hamburger and then you eat the bun and then maybe have a milkshake. Um, but if you eat it all at once, it's, it's a massive spike and uh, your body just completely crashes. But if you, if you spread it out like that, if you eat it separately, it's, it's a completely different experience. And so uh, really fascinating insights into how the human body reacts to the, you know, elements and, and, and uh, uh, food that we're eating. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, you know, uh, this kind of makes me think, Jeff, like, um, I think it's so exciting to be in our, in our industry right now, because there's sort of this convergence happening where, you know, consumer health tech and everything is moving into med tech and everything. And so there's all these interesting things like, you know, in relation to this book, there's a company called Levels, which I'm thinking about getting. Um, and it's, it's essentially a continuous glucose monitor but it's for consumers. Yeah. It's, it's not cheap yeah. either. I mean, they got a great business model. It's like 200 bucks a month, but they have yeah. an app. And I think, I think it's such a, such a big thing. Cause I've, even myself, I've noticed like what I've eaten, how I've eaten has a big impact just on the way I'm thinking in my productivity during the day. Yep. You know, exactly. And it's, Fantastic. it's, you know, it's something that's really interesting. Like I, I, I'm wearing a glucose monitor, right. And I, I don't, Oh no! Wait, which one are you using? It's uh, it's the Libra, I think, or something like that. Um, and it's, oh, okay, okay. It's it's you know, I don't have diabetes, but it's been fascinating to watch like how my body reacts to different things that I'm eating, uh, and how that changes because it's not always the same. And again, it goes back to the order. It goes back to you know how modified uh, something might be. Like the strawberry is like massive and filled with sugar versus like the more natural strawberry, which is is more well balanced. Um, so it's, it's been interesting. Now the struggle with it is these apps are, are not developed for these types of insights, right. And, and because they're, they're medical devices and, 
And, and so it's hard to extract the information you want to understand how your body is truly reacting to these types of things. And so I'm curious what levels app experience is like, because I'm sure it's it's whole completely different because it's know, really it's, impressive. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm getting I'm getting ready to do it. I'll let you know and maybe maybe you can get it as well. But, but yeah, that's exactly why is like I you know, I started wearing the whoop and every time I had a little bit of like alcohol, like a beer on the weekend, it would tank my heart rate variability in my sleep to the point that that data has influenced my behavior. And I think yeah. I've had like a, maybe a couple of drinks in the last six months. Yeah. And I used to be a guy that less I'd love to have a few beers on the weekend. Not anymore. Yeah. So I kind of want to get levels literally just to Kurt because you know, on the weekends I got a sweet tooth. So I just need to see the data on how bad it is and now and that'll just change my behavior. So um all right. So last question. Okay, I'm gonna be honest with you, this is not exactly a rapid fire question, but because of the time, it'll force you to just go to the first thing that comes to mind. Um uh you you've been a mentor to me, uh, a great friend. Um I, I always appreciate uh how you you know reached out to me and my wife when we first had our 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 son and you have a beautiful family yourself. So mentorship is important. Um what's What's something that a mentor told you that either was like painful, it stung a little bit, but something that they told you that changed you professionally and or personally? Does anything come to uh, mind? Yeah, it's um, uh, it was a professor uh, in, in business school, uh, and he said, uh, don't take things too seriously uh, because time moves on. Um, and you know, uh, there's always more buyers to fight or opportunities out there to, to, to tackle, um, and live in today in a way that, that, uh, you can really enjoy it. So, um, even though it might be high stress, um, don't take it too seriously. Don't be too hard on yourself. It's great advice. Good reminder as well. So, well, Jeff, hey, thanks so much for coming on the show. We're definitely going to have to have you back. Uh, this has been another episode of the State of MedTech. If you haven't already, make sure to stop for one second, subscribe to the show, give it five stars, and write a review. That's the reason why we're the number one show in the industry, because I make sure to tell the audience to actually review the show. All right, everybody, take care, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you for enjoying another epic episode of the State of MedTech. If you're feeling inspired and love this episode, do us a favor, hit that subscribe button and turn notifications on so you never miss an episode. And be sure to give us five stars and write a short review because that helps more people discover this amazing community of ours. If you're a company who has a executive that you'd like to be on the show, or perhaps you want to sponsor one of the episodes, shoot us an email at hello at Take care. And we'll see you next time.